0: All right. So Dr. Coons, I remember a time when I was kind of the hot ticket for a little bit in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Wolf Mueller's always been a hot ticket too. So I don't want to sound like I was out there alone. It's just, it's always been bigger, but for a bit there, I was getting a lot of attention and I was doing this thing called Ask the Pastor on Friday afternoons and a video, you know, and a lot of people know about this already. So, but what that was, was largely I just gonna get on YouTube and talk about whatever you asked me to talk about, and I would get questions usually about Bible because that was kind of the mo. And it wasn't very long, really, before I discovered I, I just I couldn't answer every question I got. I couldn't respond to every email that came my way. Uh, Facebook messages started to really log up to the point where I just checked out of Facebook at one point <laughs> for good. <laughs> yeah, I know I've been publishing there recently, but uh, you know, I was I could not keep up with it all. And I started keeping a backlog of questions and that, that backlog of questions that I had from, from WeTV days, I think we had, I, I'm going to try to be just as straight as possible. I think I had over the time, three different documents I formed with probably 50 pages, 70 pages of two <laughs> and three line questions, Yeah, you know, right. and it, it just, it, it just couldn't ever do it. And so we had to, I had to, you know, the people who were helping me kind of pick and choose, okay, what's the question, what's the thing now that's going to hit? And that, you know, hit what? Well, you know, what are we trying to hit? The broadest audience, the most pertinent reality, you know, all that, you take it into consideration. But as we go into an episode of of largely Q&A here, we're just going to have to acknowledge we've, we've hit those waters as Brief History of Power for sure. There are enough of you writing in to ask us to ask answer your questions that if we answer all your questions, we'll stop doing the normal show. Yeah. And so, uh, so, but for your part, you also (laughs) want to speak to this a little bit. So here you go. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Part of the reason we, we don't answer every question is because we just have too many and the ones that we're taking up today came in more than a month ago now. So my apologies. If you've submitted a question and it's just never been answered or we try to get to them, but. We just, we just can't because otherwise, like you say, we, we wouldn't have a show. And part of the fun of doing a show is that you get to pick what you want to talk about. (laughs) So if we just answered all the questions as they come in, there just wouldn't be a show. The other reason though, is because I find that questions rely, some of them, at least some percentage of them. Rely on a dynamic that I have consciously, by not using video and by doing a lot of other things, sought to put down as much as possible. I know it's impossible entirely, but to put down as much as possible, which is that all of this turns into talking heads. And talking heads is, I think, significantly something from video, but it exists even where you have audio. That's why it's not entirely possible to put down. But the questions are always framed in terms that will sometimes name another person who does a podcast or another person who does YouTube videos or whatever. And then, you know, what is my take? And the difficulty there is I don't really consume the stuff. And I would rather spend research time reading books and answering a question about, can you do a cities episode about Detroit or New Orleans or Las Vegas? Than researching other people on the internet for this reason that we're not doing the show just to become a comprehensive resource on everything. That was never the idea. The idea was particularly to talk about things facing people in everyday life that have long historical trains to them, explain where they came from, and provide you with some modicum of wisdom for figuring things out for yourself. This is not a show to give you every answer to every question. And that's not even to speak of maybe the question is, you know, evilly intended in some cases. It's kind of hard to tell, especially on the internet. You can recognize the possibility if you take a look at the Gospels, but who knows, right? Even if it's well-intended, this is not here for me to contrast myself or Pastor Fisk or pastor grills with everyone else on the internet, because I, I really despise the idea that you are following us listening. Sure. Thinking about what we're saying. Sure. That's great. That's fine. That was the idea. Otherwise we wouldn't talk at all, but the idea that you're following. And so the question, I think what's interesting about it is I can almost always tell in the question, okay, this person is a follower of this other group or this other channel or whatever, right? Or he's my follower. He's using a bunch of words I use and he wants me to just destroy this other guy. Not doing it. Sorry. Like you need to figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, then just stop listening to us. That's fine. Like it's, it's no big deal because I, I really don't like the idea that we produce content so that people can just gulp it down the way they would otherwise be gulping down Hollywood content or sports betting shows or whatever other junk they could be listening to.
0: I think that's solid. There's a real big distinction between a fan and a disciple. Yeah. If we're going to talk biblically. So I don't mind the word follow as Jesus said, you know, follow me. As long as I understand that anybody I follow online, I'm either actually following them like they're my master, right? Which I just, I don't do that. I just don't do that. I'm frankly going to be my own under Christ, at least in my area. But, you know, they also, it's not bad if you're looking for a master at something, And I I have, and I will, again, I'm sure follow an individual because I want to learn how to X, be better at Y. And this person has a discipline that I can, I can learn. And so sure. I want to be his disciple. I want to get his mastery. And, and this doesn't have to mean he's a, he's a master craftsman. Right? It just means that he knows how to tie a wire and he can show me how. And so then I can do it. Right. So there's a point at which all of this is super good, but there's a point at which it's so bad. And that's the fandom thing. That's where I think that yeah. a fan. Yeah. You know, I, I love meeting those who are my fans. Because it gives me a chance to see what my teaching's doing and i've been very aware for i mean a media ecology is kind of the thing that i i have done is why i was on issues et cetera, in the first place is because i was studying culture and media ecology so i've been very aware of the way you called it a dynamic earlier Yeah, that that we missouri synod playing with the new tools produce and we've talked about uh, lutheran hour in the past and squandering of of certain things but but now we're in this age of of the wild west of the internet and what what you can really see is if you do have fans of anybody you can see what their teachings doing based on how they act and what what you're saying is like hey guys if you're our fans like stop it we don't that's not the this isn't about fans here right this no. is about discipline it's about discipline. No, now, if,
1: if I wanted fans, I would have made different life choices and I would no. produce even more content than I do. And no. I would definitely do video regularly because- Yeah, right. Right, yeah. right. For sure. It because it means that just has a different power. Yeah.
0: Right, right, right. But what we are after here is influence in the other direction, right? What we're trying to do is drop enough of true seed that you will give up on the bad seed that you're consuming- whenever you consume just about anything, because if you're in a consuming mindset, then your intent direction and mastery is not your own. And so there's another distinction there. And it's really, if, if this shows about anything, it's about, Hey, consumer, stop it, go hunt for what you need and get active in what is good. And then, there's a lot more there. And I would suggest that modernism and Gnosticism is is all part of the name game stuff you were talking about, but, but amen to this, right? What are we producing? And that's why when we get questions and we're like, well, that question shows that we've produced perhaps a thought that we're not really, it's not that the question's a problem. We're scared of giving you the answer or something like that. It's more like you're on such a different train, like it just doesn't really add to the conversation that we're pushing on, which is, hey, let's let's jettison from Babylon people one way or the other. Like let's get our minds and hearts together on this. We really live here. And, and the meta that we're living in, the the zeitgeist, wake up.
1: Yeah, And I think there's there's also going there's always going to be a t- at best attention, at, at worst, an actual destruction generally of real life between real life and the internet and the difficulty there is that i did not set out to be famous or let's say lutheran famous which is you know
0: now let's let's be uh, cards on the table i did set out to make you lcm's famous <laughs> that that was my okay. intention okay and actually it was i didn't really care about lcm's what i wanted to do was get your voice into a wider Christian national dialogue about good things, because I knew you would have much to offer. And what we're talking about right now is precisely why I thought that was valuable. It wasn't about, oh, Adam's so cute. Let's all make pictures of him or something, right? It was like the the you had a way of speaking for your generation already that I thought needed voice in the LCMS for our good and could do good elsewhere. But again, that's more about the discipline of forwarding true mastery than about Creating fans or just trying to get a bigger footprint—all oh, the downloads, right? To me, it, that downloads are more about who is now speaking good things because they figured out what we're talking about, right? And and ideally, at one point, you stop listening. You you really do. You don't need it. But I mean, again, you know, checking in with your friends, keep going on. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, no,
1: I, I think it's fine. I, what I what I wanted to say is that real life has vastly greater precedence over anything that occurs on the internet. And my desire is for there to be, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, probably vastly more Lutheran churches than there are today. I, I actually want to achieve that. I don't care if that involves using this podcast or not, or if this podcast still exists in five years or not. It doesn't really matter because we're we're aiming at real life goals. And I think that the thing that happens very, very easily is that for the sake of the internet or for the sake of fame, and this is where you want to notice that a lot of the dynamics that occur on the internet are the dynamics that Jesus identifies in the Pharisees Hmm. are going to sacrifice truth or actual carrying out of the commandments of God for the sake of appearances that appearance whether it has to do with video on the internet or just group dynamics in real life with a bunch of people who are all pretending to be something that they're not is going to create on the one hand an obsession with appearance which is reprehensible and on the other hand a, a, a rage at people who are not conforming to that appearance that is not only reprehensible but but actively evil under cover of holiness so that's that's an issue that i think we always have to be attentive to and it's it's one reason that when not dealing with you know listener questions to the show but i have often pondered why is it that in the church evil seems so much worse and it's not just that people are supposed to know better it's that evil in the church when it counteracts things like getting getting more churches off the ground or or keeping churches going that are struggling or whatever actual real life things do need to be accomplished right that are not podcasts and videos and stuff like that as helpful as those things can be what what it, what is counteracting those things or why do we never even think about those things then yeah. what 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 we need to think what we need to ponder at that point is what what is it about our life together that is causing us to behave like we're on the internet, even when we're not. Yeah, to have the same kind of the same kind of rage, the same kind of lethargy, the same you know. So these are all these are all not really having to do anymore with you know. Send in your question, and and hopefully we'll get to it in a month. This is more like the the resemblance between the church's interior life and the internet, even before the internet, is rather horrifying to contemplate, including the way in which people get eaten by it mm. in the same way that they get eaten by internet blood sports i mean i remember being in seminary and you know they i think it was you know probably dr rass class talking about you know and then walther had you know whatever like three nervous breakdowns and 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 then francis peeper had a had a nervous yep. breakdown yep. And, you know and and um i don't think he stopped or whatever and we never had enough time in that class but it's like well why <laughs> yeah. you know why is that right or yeah. or why um it, during the second world war when uh the lutheran hour was probably at its height as far as listenership goes were we at a at a synod convention debating whether walter meyer was still allowed to have faculty housing at st louis i mean what is the matter with us so that that's that's something that always I go directly from here's how the internet is. Okay, fine. That's it. Doesn't it's, it's not like stressing me out. But the things that resemble that in real life, I think, are the really horrifying things: the obsession with fame, the obsession with position. And I think that it's, in some ways, it's the it's the church's version of the security mindset that we talked about in talking about Musk, is that we're we're dealing with what does it look like to have a security mindset over everything rather than. An accomplishment or an achievement or you could even say like a dreaming mindset Mm -hmm. what what could be possible what could be done and when we don't have that when we are satisfied with ourselves how do we behave Hmm.
0: yeah so there's a level of self-satisfaction that is like not at the same time going on which is that's just the last thought i'm writing down obsession with appearances is probably the the key thing to pull out of this and i would add to that once again the word gnosticism as a marvelous summary of uh, the mindset that we're up against in which the the platonic realm and define that as the internet if you like it is more real than uh than reality and it, that the way these machines combined with whatever else is going on in our food supply, water supply, air supply, yada, 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 the way that this has transformed not just the dynamics inside congregations, but inside houses, uh, inside congreg uh, inside uh, businesses, inside towns, you know, everything about who we are as a people in in a hundred years and less has been changed to reflect. A certain, it's dreaming, but it's not the dreaming you're talking about. It's like daydreaming. Yeah. And, and, you know, day walking, zombified, and all this. And we've used these metaphors before, but it, it is, it is just very, very real. And so, you know, why not every question? Uh, because this is a war, guys. It's not, we're not, we're not building a library. This is, I mean, I am, but like, <laughs> I, I'm not personally going to write everything in the library. And neither is Adam. We, we can't. Yeah. There are libraries like that. They haven't stopped the West from falling. So we're going to do some different things. And we're not even sure for my part. I don't know if I can speak forever. I'm not even sure always what that will be next week or next year. And that's, I think, why it's so good generally is because without a rigid intention to have to do it some way, the opportunities that continue arising and the word of God being stable through everything else continues to provide me with great hope. For the future, even while steeples are are falling and all of that, so so to get to the questions, then because you do have a bunch of them, and we do want to talk about what you all want to talk about because we are fascinated. <laughs> I know by we've this been stuff. talking
1: about questions. I feel you know feel bad and stupid now. So let's yeah, go. Yeah, let's right, do this. <laughs> right, right. So,
0: um, uh, Keith says this. He says, "Can you talk about the impact that language has on the power?" of the word of God, if any. See, I did that the other way around. Let's talk about the power of the word of God's impact on language. The word, he says, has great power, but it was not given to us in the English language. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, language, especially English, is always evolving. I'd say devolving. And words seemingly have different meanings as time goes on. Yes, semantic fields. Please assure me this has no effect on the words spoken at baptism or at the Lord's Supper in my prayer. Oh, and then he to the demons understand English. Okay, does anyone understand English? But let me assure you, uh, Acts chapter two, that language does not inhibit the spirit of God from enacting yeah, what right. he wants to enact. But go for it, Adam.
1: Yeah, because Christianity is a, is somewhat unusual in not having two things that that most religions have, which is a specific holy language and a specific holy diet. We don't have requisite foods or requisite food taboos like almost every religion does possess. And we don't have contra the way that church Slavonic functions in some Eastern Orthodox churches or the way that Latin functions in Roman Catholic history, at least. We don't have a holy language because things like language and food, as well as other matters, are issues that in language vis-a-vis Acts two, but in all of life vis-a-vis maybe you could take First Corinthians nine would be a good example, is where Christianity is not asking you to completely change the fact that you learned, you know, Slovak growing up, or you ate, you know, whatever kind of cuisine growing, you know, you ate Mediterranean cuisine as opposed to meat and potatoes every night or something, that you completely change who you are as a creature of God with the linguistic or ethnic or whatever specifics that you have but that the gospel comes to you in that language in in terms that are comprehensible to you because they're using the language that you actually understand without having to think about it the way that we do when we're using a second language or a third language so this all involves the way that the gospel is specifically shaped for penetration into a culture into a people into a language rather than asking that people culture or language to be changed in how they talk in how they eat in in how they carry themselves the change that occurs in people by virtue of what the word of god does in english or in arabic or in greek or whatever the change that occurs in people is a change by the holy spirit that makes them not identical to each other or obliterates their Culture or their language or their peoplehood, right? But instead, changes them in the internal man or what, what scripture is going to usually call the inner man. And that's what's being renewed day by day. So in Revelation, you still get languages, you still get peoples, right? You, you have all those things, but they are joining in a common praise, whether that praise all, you know, winds up somewhere in. Pick your favorite language, <laughs> right? So for Keith, it it sounds like it's probably not English. He's he's a little suspicious of English. I don't I don't think everyone turns into a Greek speaker in eternal life. I think that you retain, as well as your the way that you have the specifics of your own body, um, which involve looking like your mom or whatever. But the specifics of your own body, you also retain your own language. And that's the language, therefore, that we're going to minister to you in, in baptism and in distributing the Lord's Supper, because the word of God does not possess power by virtue of being in a holy language. It possesses power by virtue of the mandate of Jesus, which is then extended into every language.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and I would suggest, then, the act of translating Greek or Hebrew into that tongue, that native tongue, that that, that act and that impact is literally the redemption of that tongue
1: it's uh, that, it, yeah yeah incredibly, incredibly powerful
0: yeah yeah it, it and it will that the man or men or people who enact that tend to be famous not so much in the like your name is remembered but what they believe is going to have an impact and that belief will be formed by what the texts say but their own confession or witness will always be you know, wrapped up in the thing. And and we believe the spirit of God is working through this. And so there are errors. Yes. And yet the spirit of God prevents those errors. But all of this is for me to suggest that we live in a time where if you're, if you're intelligent enough to send a question to this show, you can get in linear and you can begin translating from Greek or Hebrew pictures, vocab only, just do vocab. You can begin working from the language into your own language and watch your own tongue just come alive in front of you uh, with way in ways you, you can't expect. Yeah. And so that's, that's an encouragement to all. I know not everyone, you know, feels like they've got the power. Look, I don't, ex- I started on my Hebrew grammar to relearn it again. And I got about a third of the way in. And I said, you know what? I think that's enough. I'm going to go organic now. And it's been the best decision I ever made. I, I don't have to memorize every little, uh, you know, participle and, and <laughs> the pointing and everything like that. All I want is on this day when I wake up and I look in my Bible and I go, what's that about? And I look at this word, I go, oh, wow, that word's amazing. That then lets that word come into English with a whole nother meaning that I start sharing with people without even having to tell them about what the word means. I start using the word. So again, the Bible literally, directly, actually redeems your tongue and this is where the New King James, we had that discussion a couple of weeks ago, is so important, um, or other discussions aligning with the concerns that that show brought up. So anything else before we go on to uh, next question?
1: Yeah, just to answer his last question directly. Yes, demons understand English, obviously, because they use English in order to tempt us who are native English speakers. So we will use English so that the word of God can be preached and counteract those temptations. They'll use whatever they they can, or they have to, or they feel that they must. So we will use the word of God in that language in order to counteract them and, and put them to flight.
0: So I'm pretty confident. I'm. I guess I really am curious about your opinion here. I'm gonna. I'm gonna suggest some hypotheses, and you can you can strike them down. All right. Um, I'm pretty confident that uh, demons cannot read your thoughts. That's one. But two, I mean, they they can hear what you say. So that's an interesting distinction there. I. I'm not confident they can read what's on paper. I don't know. I don't know how one would know, but I think it's interesting. They've been there when words were spoken. The devil knows what it says, but can he go study it the way we can? And then this all gets really interesting when you throw that weird question through. uh, Can they read it if it's in electronics? And do they have a different capacity in that realm? And blah, blah. So that's fun conspiracy stuff. What what do you think? Some of
1: it, I just, you know, uh, that's that's a question that, like you said earlier, I don't know because I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: How would you I can't know? answer because I don't know. But I, I think part of the question of what demons understand is is a, is a little bit beside the point in that. I'm n- I'm never worried about what is this maleven- malevolent force mm-hmm. capable of understanding. Yeah. I'm I'm instead interested in what is this malevolent force trying to do to me which is more readily observable or more readily experienced. So if I know that whether they can read my thoughts or not the suggestions that they make get processed in me as thoughts or they get processed in me as emotions or whatever the case may be then what I want to use the word of God to counteract is not what I believe their capacities to be, but what I know is occurring in my own mind or in my own mm, heart mm, or mm. whatever the case may be. So this is something where we, our tradition, is a little bit lacking in practical discussion in in the manner that you particularly find it among the earliest church fathers especially the Desert Fathers. Hmm. And what, what I think is helpful about them is not that everything they say is solid gold, but that they are thinking about these processes of how temptation occurs, why it generally occurs in solitude, right? In the way that the Lord is tempted most brazenly in solitude and how those things relate to the control of one's emotions or the control of one's thoughts That is the extension of self-control, which is the fruit, which is part of the spirit's indwelling, right? Part of the spirit's fruit, how self-control gets extended throughout other portions of life. So I don't have a readily developed demonology to say, yes, I I, you know, I agree that their interaction with technology is different than their interaction with human thoughts or with words on a page. I do know that it's always profitable to consider what are they doing to me? How does, how do these things occur to me? Because it does seem apparent that they will try to push on particularly weaknesses. Mm. So when Jesus is hungry, food is offered, right? Bread is offered. When Judas is greedy, money is offered. And when John's gospel tells you that Judas is putting his hand into the money box over and over again, I think that's chapter 12, if I remember correctly before the 30 pieces of silver you can see that they aim at our weaknesses so what i need to know is my weakness and then how to apply the the word of god to that weakness to that weak point of whether it's greed or whether it's hunger or whatever it might be
0: yeah so the understanding again is is kind of a hint at our search for gnostic answers yeah that, that we want this kind of mathematical solution so i go into the problem and now i act with my knowledge and i prove myself to win. You're up against a malevolent spirit, which is wit, is not in any way used for understanding, but is merely like a pressure system of yeah. destruction, yeah. pushing on that which it can destroy. And as you point out, you know the word of God in you day by day, renewing the inner man, it makes you a very different kind of prey to that. Yeah. Fact, I'd say it right. makes you... Predator, not is that you're going to go out and chase them in the way that a gnostic would right but the way that dr kunst Adamy just talked about the yeah. awareness of the present battle like wow where did that emotion come from i probably don't want to act on that emotion let's right. let's consider this right you know, like that kind of thing right <laughs> and more of that right all ye all ye who would build a greater kingdom hey let's move on here yeah uh, yes, sir. let's go. It says, uh, hello, thank you for your work. I have a quick question. What recommendations do you have for planting new LCMS churches? <laughs> How might one turn a Bible study or a preaching mission station into a church? How do you inspire an LCMS district? You could just ask a question mark right there, you know, leave it. But but to prioritize for real indeed to make efforts to plant churches.
1: <laughs> There's no question um, mark in the original. So the listeners know. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And what do you envision as long-term staffing plans? In my district, we have many vacant and calling or should be calling congregations and almost no efforts to plant new churches that I'm aware of. Now, this is just so, every district I know of says mission, mission, mission. But I I just want to get back to the first thing. What recommendations do you have for planting new LCMS churches okay so all the rest of this is like church growth 102 or what do we learn to not learn from church growth or something like that but before that yeah. the bigger question to me is like why does the world need any more lcms churches if we can't even get the ones we have to get together and call pastors why could because, yeah.
1: because yeah, because and this is this is where his first question and his last question are actually pretty intimately related to each other. The question of both new churches and then staffing, right, or pastoral vacancies. You could, in a in another phrase, they're related to each other because you you might observe and I was just in far northern California, close to Oregon, and a lady asked me about denominations generally, and I am not sure what denomination she was being where it is. She might be vaguely Pentecostal. I don't know. <laughs> or very Pentecostal based on what's sort of the majority all the way up there. But what, what you probably want to realize is that you're always going to have, and you have in various permutations throughout church history, something that George Peters, who talked about these things in a couple different books, described as centrifugal and centripetal, or meaning pulling in towards the center or pushing out towards the outside. And that that's going to exist in various groups in in different configurations. So in Roman Catholicism, in the Middle Ages, You've got your diocesan clergy, your, your secular clergy, but your missionary work is generally carried out by monastics of various kinds, friars, and, and before that, other, other forms, right? Those are the people who are going to go places other people are not and get to people that your settled clergy and your settled diocesan institutions and stuff like that are not going to get to. To some degree, this is covered in the LCMS, to return to his first question, by the difference between a congregation, district, or synod and a mission agency of different kinds. So, like, we have a mission agency, I think we have two actually, to reach Jewish people in the United States largely. So, that's where it's like, okay, well, this work is not going to get done for whatever reason by these settled groups. So we need to do this. And that's generally been the strategy for Protestant missions, particularly. So Protestant missions haven't used monasticism, obviously, but they've used essentially the same framework, which is let's create a separate group to get this done because it's not getting done as a matter of course, because as a matter of course, and this turns into discussion of long-term staffing, that group is going to seek to supply the established group is going to seek to fix the problems that it has right now, which in the case of the LCMS are a combination of not really having enough pastors to replace the ones that we already have. And then if you say, okay, but we have too many churches or they're too close together or whatever, which is for listeners, uh, you know, outside the upper Midwest is completely not obvious and not even true that we have too many churches. We generally have too few outside of a certain geographic area consolidation therefore is, I think has to be a local consideration. Like, do we need to get together? How do we get together? That's something that a district I think is well prepared to work on. The question of starting new then would be to reach people in places where we don't need to consolidate, which is tons and tons and tons and tons of places (laughs) and lots of people. But I I don't think that's necessarily going to be carried out by a district all the time because the district might just need to try to fit in or or fill the pulpits it already has that are going vacant. Or if that pulpit doesn't need to be filled, they need to figure out, okay, how do we close this church? Or how do we consolidate this church, if you want to say it in another way? So I have some concrete recommendations for planting new LCMS churches. But the reason for the dynamic that's observable, not only in the LCMS, is that And this was, Peter's observation was just a church history observation. It doesn't mean it has to be this way. But even in Acts, you have Jerusalem not honestly getting a whole lot done, okay, in terms of the mandate of Jesus from Acts 1. And then you have Antioch that is formed in a different cultural situation with Jews and Gentiles mixing from the first. And that's going to be your dynamo in Acts, not only through Paul for getting new churches planted in other parts of the eastern mediterranean so there's 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 always been a lag between what's supposed to be getting done and what's actually getting done okay sure i think part of the reason for that lag is that once you're inside an established situation it's it's not only easy so there's not there's not only laziness perhaps involved sometimes It's also imperative that you actually keep the established thing going most of the time. And certainly from within the established thing, keeping it going just seems obvious. Like so whether you want to say, Oh, well, it's it's the it's a sunk cost fallacy, like we invested in this, so of course we have to care about it. Or you say, like, well, if we don't have anything established, we're not gonna have anything that's gonna we're not gonna be able to support things that need to be established, whichever whatever, however cynical you wanna be about this, it doesn't surprise me. When a district or whatever established thing, a Roman Catholic diocese, a district of the assemblies of God, whatever it is, doesn't prioritize what, like you said, Pastor Fisk, they, they're they saying they prioritize because as much as you might want to do something new, you also, and this this is, you know, this is kind of a, this is a Dave Peterson talking point. So I don't know if, I don't know if Pastor Peterson listens, but I I think about this frequently is that maintenance is necessary. <laughs> you know, like there's no shame <laughs> in keeping your 120-year-old building beautiful and livable for a congregation. There's nothing wrong with that, right? That's not intrinsically lesser than planting a new church. Both need to happen, however. And of course, established things are going to think first and maybe even last about keeping established things going.
0: There's a lot in there and, and it's, it's, uh, it's a worthy frame The why, why LCMS still is to me a question of what are we actually going to plant? Um, (laughs) Right. Like, like I really don't want more small groups of know-it-alls who think everyone should be more like them out there saying that's what Lutheran is with some form of musical setting that's completely unique to them, but they think everyone should do. I just don't think we need, need more of that. Right. So how do we plant something different? I, I don't think we need more culture of sort of like shame on you. If you don't fit in Uh more culture of workaholism uh, support, you know, there's a lot of things that I have seen in every Missouri Synod church I've been to. They're not, they're not unique to, to one. I'm just not sure Christianity needs us to forward. And that's where for me, planting new churches is going to be tied to a kind of repentance about the spirit of what we're doing. I I like you bringing up monasticism, not so much in regard to, you know, let's form a building somewhere for young men to go and explore what it means to be a young man under the tutelage of a supervisor. Although there is one called the Hebron Collegium, it's a spiritual retreat center for men in Rockford. But beyond that, what makes monasticism what it is in the Roman Catholic phenomena is that it's a rule. And to understand that kind of every parachurch thing that comes up, it's not a congregation. It's not a district or it's, it's parachurch. It's it's the, these little, you know, societies that you talked about earlier. Yeah, If you conceive of them as a rule, they're spiritual rules like monasticism. So, yeah, you're all Roman Catholics, but I'm Franciscan and you're Benedictine. And that means quite a bit, right? And we're not talking Baptist and Lutheran here. Uh, we're talking, uh, you know, Lutheran Bible translators versus issues, et cetera, a little bit, right? Like, what is your spirit? What are the spirits you are part of? And then how does this interact with the distinction between uh, something that that I don't think we we think about enough, which is the state church and the free church? And I think we're under a little bit of an illusion that our congregations are not state churches, uh, that they're free churches because the government doesn't tell us everything we're supposed to do but the more i've been in this system the more i realize how much almost all that we do with our buildings except for perhaps how we decorate them and the words we speak is done because the state tells us to in some way shape or form and what's interesting then is how a lot of these para church spirit movements are operating the way free church movements did in state churches that were are not getting everything done. They were maintaining baptisms and weddings and such, but they weren't feeding people with the word of God. And so you get these house movements and these backyard movements and all this stuff that leads to a bunch of nanny, to be sure, but nonetheless was doing what the state church at the time was not doing. And so somewhere in all of that, yeah. you know, uh, for me, this is about answering the question. So what are, what are we going to do now? Do we forward more LCMS state churches? I think the answer is not necessarily. Right? Do we want to see congregations of of Bible believing Christians, where the Word is taught in purity, uh, in in more places than than just where the Germans settled in America in the 1800s? Yeah, yeah, definitely, right. But I just I don't equate those questions, and I think we shouldn't equate those questions. Otherwise, we'll end up with a lot more of of uh, <laughs> congregations that look like our dysfunctional system as opposed to congregations maybe helping us repent from our dysfunctional system.
1: Practically speaking, the second question that he asks relates to what you just said, because the focus that you want to have is not primarily on the LCMS per se. It has to be primarily on the people who need to hear the word of God. So there's a very simple way to think about how you turn some smaller activity into something larger. And that is apart from all the complication that I'm happy to discuss with anybody. If you get in touch, you can even email me directly if you want to R E V K O O N D Z at gmail.com. But ooh,
0: ooh, 4,000 emails coming, 4,000 emails baby. coming in. <laughs> yeah. They can just
1: send the hate mail directly. That's
0: how much I actually I actually care about this.
1: I actually care about this. Like my particular opinion on every question I don't care about. So send I'm, those I'm really questions torn. to show. I mean
0: everybody, just like one smiley face emoji and send it. I mean, really, everyone. Yeah, it's just fine. Tell them I mean them that would be nice. That's birthday pleasant. surprises. I know yeah. I can...
1: <laughs> yeah, send me send me a digital birthday card. I like those. But the really simple way to think about this is simply that you're trying to spread the word of God to as many people as possible, and then keeping track of how the word is faring with those people individually. Amen. And you're, that's why you're going to do things They get you lists and get you contact info. And then you're going to send various, you know, you're going to send an email, you're going to send texts, you're going to invite them to things. They're going to come to some things. They're going to not come anymore, whatever you build that momentum of people into a church. This relates to answering the third question in terms of what I just said, however. Um, The third question is, how do you inspire an LCMS district to prioritize, et cetera? (laughs) Okay. Ah. Is this, that you need to think really about people and their exposure to the word of God wherever you're trying to start a church. And then you worry about the things that usually the established church or the the centrifugal church is going to worry about primarily, which is money, which also pertains to the long-term staffing plans. Yeah. I would suggest that you stop thinking of money from a scarcity mindset and start thinking about it in biblical terms as something that God will give to his people as they need it. And you need to ask for it, whether it's from the district or from another congregation or from an individual Christian, that you pursue a Second Corinthians 8 and 9 life and ask for God's people to use the gifts he's given them to supply what you're doing rather than first of all saying, well, we don't have money or we don't have enough money or whatever the case may be. Now, I want to be really clear about this because as we look at the future, the thing that I hear most often is that we're all going to have second jobs as pastors. I don't think that's biblical. Paul has a second job by choice to further the gospel in the same way that Paul puts aside the right to take a believing wife Peter has a believing wife, for example, right? The other apostles have believing wives. He puts aside the right, exousia in Greek, to have a believing wife in order basically to go farther and faster in the proclamation of the gospel. Great. That's his choice. He's very explicit about that. That's his choice. He chooses to work so that the Thessalonians can hear the gospel. He's not like, well, we only have 10 people, so I guess I'll... And they're like, well... Better get a job, Paul, right? Is that it's not really biblical for God's people's gifts to be inactive in the furtherance of the mission. They need to give so that those who preach the gospel can get their living by the gospel, which makes the gospel full time. The gospel isn't part time for anybody. And Paul will sometimes, and you can see it in Acts, he will sometimes set aside the other job that he sometimes takes in order, for example, to teach in the Hall of Tyrannus, day in and day out. So when you're thinking about these things, you want to prioritize as the one, whether you're a layman getting started with these things, um, trying to foster something, or you're a pastor, or you'd like to be a pastor, you want to think primarily about people and their exposure to the Word of God. Once you have that clear and you're active in that, I, I can tell you from personal experience, it's relatively easy to inspire people to give to that because you're actually doing something <laughs> you know that's not actually and it and it's and it's beautiful to see when God's people are inspired by the fact that the gospel is still moving and active and being proclaimed to people. So the the latter issues of inspiration or long-term staffing difficulties I think would be a lot easier to solve if we were more. Active in these things because people want to join that momentum, which is all that Paul's asking them to do in Second Corinthians eight and nine.
0: The scarcity mindset is is really a thing, and oh, it's uh, and it's almost ubiquitous, right? It's a, like, it's a sign of the worship of the dollar, I think. Yeah, you know, pra- practically all y'all, right? Like, and we all do it. So, acknowledge that there is there is in the carnal man. This need to prepare for tomorrow more than the inner man actually needs or has been told he needs, and yeah. a lot of the battle is is what that's about, right? Yeah, yeah. And so the the worship of the dollar just inevitably leads to a scarcity mindset. It's a piece of paper, of course, you don't trust it. <laughs> yeah, and, and and yet God owns. Not just the dollars, the paper, the idea of money, whatever that is that we're now using as a story to transact—it's kind of kind of ridiculous magi stuff. We've talked about this. God owns all the real stuff and the results in all of the stories we're telling. So if if you really don't have what you authentically need, He's like probably already going to give it to you without yeah. you asking. Yeah. So so how about you ask for what you think you need? And then if you find he says no again and again, I mean, my my learning curve has been this. You asked to spend on your passions. And I say, well, I've tried not to. And it's like, yeah, but you still do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And right. then it's, so it turned right. into
0: this one, Adam, and I really like this one. It's like, okay, so what am I passionate about? What do I want to do that's good and is worth sharing with others more so than keeping for myself? Yeah. I'm gonna ask for more of that, and wouldn't you know you yeah. know, floodgates open and it it isn't cash, although there's been cash when it's needed. again, because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I mean, go you know tattoo that one on your wall. yeah, um, it's so huge to this. and and for the church to be running around scared, again, it betrays what what we are. We're worshiping the capacity to maintain some of these state buildings. And I, you know, losing the footprint, golly, losing the footprint, what a disaster. But that game, so far as my learning curve for this show has been, and what I thought before the show, but I think you've, you've affirmed it with our study of the last century, is that the opportunity to retain the majority of these land footprints passed us sometime in the 60s, maybe the 70s, and it's too late to keep them all. So, the real question is, how do we, in an inspired way, truly make cataloged retreats or 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 careful retreats, not the way you would go to hide, but for rallying points so that cities are not entirely lost to us and that we're nowhere uh, because we've just put too much hope in in what we already are. Yeah, and that's not to say that maintenance is' maintenance is necessary. That's right. We didn't do any a certain kind. We didn't do a certain kind of maintenance for a very long time uh so uh, i want to move us on even though i know there's so much more we could say about this and it's, it's sure. in your bailiwick so writers write in again because he will talk about mission all day uh looks like we got a pastor saying hello thanks for your work question recently in bhop 167 you rightly criticized the terms nationalism and individualism as being poorly defined and requiring more context both in this episode and in the past, you appeal to the concept of nature, and rebelling against nature is a key aspect of modern decline. Would you define what you mean by nature? This is good. I've been searching for this, actually. I've been on this hunt. Uh, both in a moral and technological sense, that's, that's actually almost defining it sense, uh, itself a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, morally speaking, would all sin be considered unnatural? Um, yes. Uh, or is it helpful to distinguish between natural and unnatural sins, thinking of Romans? Well, there's d- degrees, right? There's like a yeah. spectrum of disnature. Right. It, yeah, it goes we'll from being that. being missing the mark to being an aberration. And, you know, just because your kid fired the arrow and it didn't hit the target by 15 feet, you wouldn't be like, that's an aberration, right? Yeah. Right. It's just a really bad sin. And so that language, you're, you're going to get to it. How do I identify the difference? Uh, technologically speaking, he says, would chemical or genetic engineering be considered unnatural? Like it's on the border, ain't it now? Uh, what about metallurgy or selective breeding? Well, what spirit are we using? Um, I'm also considering the potential, he says, unnaturalness of space travel. It seems hard, doesn't it? As compared to the extended periods at sea once taken by our ancestors, is it's great. unclear to me how we to the define- go ahead it's really good yeah you're right it's great (laughs) it's unclear to me how to define when a technology has stepped outside of the bounds of nature if its application does not appear immoral i've heard it said that we could not feed everyone alive today without reliance on modern agricultural practices Um, we could feed a lot more people if we would grow cows with modern understanding going on Uh, but do not know the alterations oh excuse alternatives or to what extent these practices should be viewed as unnatural? It calls for wisdom, man. Uh, would you would love to hear your thoughts? I'm going to just add to this a little bit that there's a scenario that's come up in my family where we have to ask a very serious question about a medical procedure for one of my children. And I'll be frank, post 2020, I don't trust a white coat even if I like them a lot and I think they've read stuff, I don't think most of them are reading. And that scares me. I think they're repeating what they were taught. I think they've got agendas. I think the money runs the system. I am not sure I even believe in some of the things that I was told were true. And we all know in the eighties by a TV, and I believed it for a long time. So now I have to like, I'm just rethinking it all, right? I'm also very well aware of the historical weirdness of, no, you can't have surgery because we're Christians. The Bible says so, which is definitely out there in American Protestantism. And frankly, post-2020, it's kind of like, well, they weren't all wrong, were they now? Yeah. Right? So what do I do when the physician says, I want to cut your child to repair a small portion by removing a small portion, right? A flesh, right? Yeah. Um, is, is this morally, is this technologically sin? Or does it call for wisdom that just doesn't get put into a bullet point Gnostic answer?
1: Yeah, okay. So we don't have enough time to answer all this. And I, I, what I'm going to do is just bracket out the questions about specific disciplines like chemical engineering or space travel for other times. But I think that the conceptual question can be answered relatively briefly, which is that nature as it's used biblically, and then in the theological tradition. So you'll get discussions like this, for instance, in the formula of Concord and the Lutheran confessions, as well as other places, is going to be a created ground or a created pattern or order that God has put into something. So according to its nature or reproduction according to its kind is a similar word in Hebrew. And what you're dealing with is the way that something is set up to function. Sin, therefore, yeah, can be considered all of it unnatural. But when Paul is talking in Romans 1 about things against nature, he's talking about something particularly heinous because it openly and obviously violates nature. So in that case, Homosexual relations are unnatural in a way that polygamy or adultery in a heterosexual sense is not, quote, unnatural because it's not contravening the obvious use of those human organs. That's so. This is where unnatural could be, yeah, anything because we weren't created with a sinful nature. We have a sinful nature by virtue of descent from Adam. But when Paul is talking about against nature, he's talking about things that have a particular grievousness to them because of how blatantly self-destructive they are since they rebel so openly and clearly against the nature that we were created with, right? Everything's unnatural. That's why all sin is of a piece, right? And you're not above the one who is committing a sin against nature in that sense. But what Paul is saying is that certain sins, because of their blatantly Obviously, contra naturam unnatural way are more destructive, right? So he's talking about a something that by degree, not by kind, by degree is more grievous or more unnatural than other things in Romans one that that's the difference between them. That's how you that's how you pick it out. But you might say, okay, maybe that's moral, but but what do we mean by technological sense? And this is where I am not entirely opposed to, and I think I've said this before, but I'm not entirely opposed to all modern discourse. Not, not generally, right? It's not a sort of like trad mental habit that I have, but I'm, I'm certainly not opposed to some of the discussion, particularly about what is nature within environmental thinking. The reason being This is one of the few realms of modern life left where there is a sense that if you push beyond limits, something bad will happen and you you don't have control over it except to not push beyond that limit. Now, the issue there is that you'll notice that a lot of discussion even of environmental action, law, et cetera, is really shaped more by thinking in terms of potential consequence or apocalypse, rather than in terms of nature. Climate change, for example, as a public discussion, as a propaganda piece, as a set of talking points, is not really about nature, it's about apocalypse. Because biblically, apocalypses are in God's control solely, that's not really something I can coherently, and certainly not in terms of public policy, or having to switch my entire automotive industry to electric or whatever. That's not something I can really control. I have no control over apocalypses. Climate change thinking tells me that I do, and that if I just buy a Tesla, I will contribute, and then I won't be responsible for the apocalypse or something. right? I don't know. The issue, though, in a technological sense, and the thing that is helpful about certain environmental thinking is that it poses the idea there are actual hard limits it's not that nature can't come back from that but you can destroy things when you act against its grain over and over and over and over again right so this is where i i like the word sustainability but sustainability is when it exists it's self-enacting meaning If something is unsustainable, rather, whether it's something I'm doing in my life or it's something I'm doing to the land or something, guess what? It will fail of its own accord. And I think not understanding that sustainability is not in that sense, if it's a choice that I can make, it's a choice to align myself with nature. It's not a choice for me to set up what is sustainable. Since nature actually exists, both in the creation generally, and inside of us. When I align myself with that nature, when I accept its existence, when I accept the created pattern, then this is why you get these conditional promises in Proverbs or whatever. When I align myself with that nature, when I figure out what it is to be a good man, or I figure out what it is to be someone who stewards possessions or whatever, then I'm just accepting what is actually sustainable i I can't make sustainability. I either accept what is sustainable in a in a very limited way, right? under the sun, all of it subject to judgment and apocalypse one day. but I either accept what's sustainable, what is natural, or I push against the grain of that and I try to make m- money out of more money, right, which is what was identified as unnatural about usury, or I try to live in a way in Sexual relationships that is unnatural in Romans 1, and that will be its own destruction. The reason it's its own destruction is because nature exists, and nature is sustainable under the sun and subject to God's judgment. And what is unnatural is not sustainable by definition. So the moral and the technological sense of what nature is are always related to each other because they involve my either aligning morally or being out of alignment morally with what is natural to running a business in an honest way or whatever the case may be. And then technology either fools me into believing that what is unsustainable is actually sustainable, or it could help me. And this is where we can get into these other disciplines another time. It could help me in augmenting, right? Or or helping align all that I'm doing with nature. So an example of a technological sense of aligning with nature would be, you know, soil amendment, which everybody who grows anything does, and it makes the soil more fertile if you're doing it the right way. Or I could just deplete the soil generation after generation after generation, and my yields would go down generation or really year by year by year, doesn't even take generations. So I can either accept that the soil needs certain things in order to grow the crops that are feeding man and beast, or I can ignore that and push against it and see how it goes.
0: So you're either augmenting according to design or against it. Yeah,
1: because technology is not per se evil. It is part of what man is and how he exercises dominion. The thing to notice, however, is that it is the sons of Cain who are most technologically advanced before the flood and that that doesn't teach us that all technology is evil it teaches us that technology is readily misused mm-hmm. for us to do things that are morally and technologically and naturally unsustainable
0: yeah to to quote dr luther you know man uses the best things of god in the worst possible way <laughs> and and technology <laughs> yeah. is is definitely what you've advocated in creativity and i think uh, those creativity technology design these are all tied to each other go look up the hebrew mitzmah for some fun i i found this past week while digging into ecclesiastes 115 something i think might might bring us home here a little bit on the nature yeah. discussion yeah. from a different angle and it's in just the first part of Ecclesiastes one fifteen where it says that which is crooked cannot be made straight, and I think this is in many ways uh, one of the places that Solomon d- defines his understanding of nature. You know, nature is that thing which you actually can't change. Uh, you can try, you can you can rub against the grain, and the result will be that it will destroy you and then replace you, right? And it will come back. Nature will come back. You will not, right? Right. Uh, and so the the power of understanding that there are things that are straight that are to remain straight, and there are things that are crooked that are to remain crooked. And then now do some digging. And, and you find that that word crooked is pretty spectacularly specified in Hebrew. It's the word for describing an old man's legs, mainly his bones. Yeah. An old man's bones, right? They're just a little more bent than they should be, right? Why decay, age, all of this, right? Right. And that, who did that to him? God did that to him. And then the word "straight" it doesn't have quite the pedigree. If you just look it up in the TWOT theological word book of the Old Testament, uh, it just gives you a definition, which is very rare that they don't give you a root or any history or anything. And I thought that just that's just so weird. I think Solomon's better than that. And so I'll, I'll speculate here. What I found is that. The, the word itself has a potential kind of slight grammatical shift misspelling that adds a new for the maim in a different word that's all over the old testament and in fact means to stand upright. To stand upright. And so you you know, what is what is an old man who's bending down he he's not going to make himself stand upright. Right. You must accept the way things are. Right. And, and that is the wisdom of the verse. There's more, what's lacking cannot be counted. But I would I would suggest that this is not a negative thing at all, right? Oh, there's all this crooked stuff I can't fix. Remember that Christianity is that you are straight. Jesus has straightened you and he has straightened the path before you. So again, walk it and don't kick against the grain and, and or don't act against the grain. Don't kick against the goats, right? Don't overclock time. It doesn't work right. and that, to bring it back to you know our family discussion last night about the medical procedure it's like look everybody hey we just learned this yesterday we got weeks until we know if we can even schedule anything so we'll pray for now and we'll trust god and we'll believe that healing is something he wants and then we'll, we'll make a good decision but you know the chances are we're going to walk through with this and it's a chance for all of us to ask again you know what does it mean to pursue healing at the hands of men, and, and for me and my house, what it means is that we do so prayerfully, prayerfully, carefully, pursuing the steps as though we would rather be under his will than our own, and that we have no intention of trying to straighten that which he has set in in motion as crooked. But that also to know that, like you said, you know, the the stewardship or the augmentation of the present moment, the present day by your hands and your mouth for the good is why you're still here. (laughs) You know, uh, there's a reason that early Christians went and cared for the sick and the poor when no one else would. And it, it wasn't just like oh we'll take care of you till you die i don't think so medicine in many ways i mean there's always the greek version of pharmacia but but medicine in many ways as we have it today is there because christians pursued the simple support of natural things like family delivery right healing from simple illnesses and colds right. helping young children make it through infancy through with the water wash them that kind of thing so you know i'm, I'm all for more of that and not losing that um, as we understand that the heathen have so detached themselves from nature that you don't really you don't really know what to make of them. I'm, I'll, I'll, let me throw another twist to this I and mean, we're over time, but like the the doctor himself, who's uh, done many, many of these surgeries to the level where the, the risk of this is like, you know, it's like a, an elbow surgery or something, right? It's yeah. just so small. It's an incision. It's not even a big deal. The question came up about future fertility because of the nature of this particular thing, and you can imagine what you want. But it's it's not that big a deal. And it, it, the question came up, and his answer was, "You can make a baby from dead sperm, so it doesn't matter. Fertility's not an issue. Here's why we got it. You, you should fix this, right?" And he sold the surgery, which I don't blame him. That's what they do, and I think he's professional. But like, you know, there he he just betrayed that he'll do unnatural things, right? So now I've got a doctor who can do a natural thing. Very well, it would seem, and and uh, without trouble. I don't know his God or his gods, but he'll he'll advocate unnatural things with his science, right? And and as a Christian now, I've got to talk my family through this, and then we've got to decide: we're in a marketplace, do we buy the meat or not? Right? And it's it's not about does Jesus love me; it's about what's wisdom, and do I love it, and and can I learn to trust? And and so forth. So Adam, I, I want to give you last word there on that, because that that is kind of an, it's an uncertainty for me still. So I'm not going to just kind of stamp that hard. It's a, it's a hard walk, this straight one.
1: We're going to have to save a lot of things that Josh asked about for another time. But I think that it's it's helpful to understand that there's, when you have these different paths, you can, What let's just talk about travel. And just as one example, there are all kinds of different ways to do that. And that the kind that is actually able to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it, also over human bodies through medicine, is one that's going to accept certain things about nature. Will, for instance, if you're carrying new plants from elsewhere in Polynesia to settle Hawaii, you're going to take things that will grow in Hawaii. An easy example, because so much will grow in Hawaii. But you can see that if you try to take things that could not grow there, that rely on, for instance, dormancy in a tropical environment, they're not going to flourish. So whatever you're doing, even if you're doing new things or doing unprecedented things, and we can therefore save space travel for another time, but when you are settling new parts of the Earth, for example, you have to accept the way that things are there. And that when you push against that grain, also in the human body, There's always going to be risk, whatever choice you make. The question is, are you risking on the side of accepting that this is the way the weather is here, or this is the way the body functions, or are you risking saying, you know what? I'm just going to work against the weather. It's fine. You know, I'm just going to do this maybe that's possible in a greenhouse but <laughs> you know if you're in a cold environment and you're growing tropical things in a greenhouse and suddenly there's a hailstorm and your greenhouse is shattered well now those things don't grow anymore so there's a fragility to pushing against nature that is not there there's a robustness when nature is respected in the body in the ground wherever it is that you are interacting with it and the reason many people don't understand so much even about their own lives is because they don't accept, they don't even maybe know that there are natures to themselves, to men, to women, to the earth, to this part of the earth. And because of that, they are continually surprised by what is seemingly obvious, that when I'm going to try to expose a tropical plant that was in a greenhouse and now it's exposed to the cold winter air of Alaska, things are not
0: going to go well. Don't let your M.O. be (laughs) dernism. You're listening to a brief history your power. You know where to find us, or you wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com
1: What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding a college that teaches the best of our Western heritage, a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the beautiful Inland Northwest.